Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jennifer Lee. And my name is Peter Liu, and we are pediatric GI doctors at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. So Jen, what are you excited about today? So it's the first day that my child, who's five years old, oh, yeah. is eligible for the COVID vaccine. So she, after she watched you struggle through your booster, she's still on board with getting the Okay, uh, so struggle is a little bit of a big word, but yes. <laughs> she actually said, and this broke my heart, she goes, I really want to get the vaccine to help others, oh, wow. but only if they give me a My Little Pony uh, band-aid. Oh, it's very specific. What are you going to do? Well, I got one and Mark got one also. Oh, okay, so yeah. the All hope right. is they have one for her. <laughs> you you should go to clinic and get one just to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. She's like super I think we looking forward to that. Oh man. That's so like sweet and mature of her. I know. Right. Yeah. No, no kid wants to help. No, that's not true. Kids are just more noble in general. Kids are really great. And one of a couple of her friends are actually in the vaccine trial. And so they've talked about it a lot over the course of the last few months. And and most of them got something after they got their vaccine. So she's also (laughs) asking if she can go to the learning center to pick out a toy, not just for herself, but also for her sister. Oh, wow. Like how? I don't know. That's really. I don't know how sweet. I don't know who she got that sweetness from. She has great parents. Wow, she that's must. amazing. Okay, anyway. so yeah, what am I excited about? Yeah. Um, How was Emma's very first Halloween? What costume does she wear? Okay, so Emma is now eight months old, and uh, we have three costumes lined up. There's been a lot of uh, <laughs> costume changes over the course of the weekend. She has a Harry Potter costume that my mother-in-law bought us like when she was first born. Hermione or Harry? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Harry. What? I don't even like Harry Potter. So I, I'm like, nah, she doesn't have to wear that. I don't think we can be friends if you don't like Harry uh, Potter. I don't read books. That's I mean, more of a reason why we shouldn't be friends. <laughs> <laughs> so the second one that I wanted was like, it's basically just like a, like some winter gear, like a full bodysuit, but there's ears on it. So she's a bear. That's very cute. I think I've seen that one though. Like she wears it it's, not as yeah, a costume. All right. It's cheating. I know. And then Leslie said that's not a costume. So we bought her a pink dinosaur costume because she makes that's very the cute. noises she currently makes are like roars. Like a pterodactyl. <sighs> you know, what I was telling Leslie is like, we don't know what sounds dinosaurs made. That's true. And they could be pink. You don't know that. No one knows what color they are. That's They're just true. commonly depicted. We only have their bones. I mean, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Did I just blow so your she's mind? She's a realistic pink dinosaur. <laughs> Got it. So <laughs> yeah, with the actual sounds. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hopefully, we hopefully we'll just like poke her a little bit, make sure she makes some noise when when needed. So you know the other. So not to change the topic, I have been wanting to talk to Dr. Dennis Black since we started this podcast. So I'm really excited that you got to meet him. Yeah, here. I know. I feel like you've been talking about him every single meeting we have about this podcast. <laughs> yeah, because I wanted to get him on the list. Yep. Um. So Dr. Black was my one of my primary mentors in residency and fellowship, and a That's big awesome. reason that I went into PHGI mm-hmm. and also came to Columbus for the informatics fellowship. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know. Okay. He's the one who told me to step outside of my comfort zone and box, which wow, also and helped it. me. I did. Yeah. And that also helped with the podcast because like, yeah. I was not comfortable talking in the mic. And so. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm still not comfortable talking in the mic, but <laughs> you're doing it. Anyway, so Dr. Dennis Black is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee, and he is also the director of the Research Institute, or CFI, Children's Foundation Research Institute mm-hmm. of Laboner Children's Hospital. Uh, he's a hepatologist, transplant hepatologist, and... Um, I like that his uh, online bio says, in quotes, there's more than meets the eye. So today we talk about primary sclerosing cholangitis, or PSC, uh, a topic that um, I feel like for many of us non-hepatologists, um, have, I haven't really thought about much since I took boards. But <laughs> we talk about you know what it is and also why it matters to us as uh, you know both hepatologists and non-hepatologists and um, things that we need to think about in terms of like disease associations. Well, anyone who cares for patients with IBD should yeah. really think about it. Right, 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 so. right. Before we get started, though, we did want to give a couple more shout outs. Oh, yes. Uh, there have been some more reviews. And also, I'm not sure why we keep begging for reviews, but that's what other podcasts do. So I feel like we should do that. Yeah. All right. You want to start with your uh, your featured review? My featured review is from Eat the Rainbow RD. Five stars. Yes. Um, this platform allows for learning outside in the virtual world, which is what we were aiming for. And I love how you say that it motivates me and expands your perspective, because that is really something we're going with here is we're just, we're hoping to motivate others as we talk about these topics. Yes. Okay. The one I chose, um, topic or yeah, the topic is so helpful. Five stars. It's by JRUT73, which I don't know her. I'm I think, I think it do. might be someone I know, but she was not born in 1973, so I don't know. Hmm. But she's a PGI fellow. She loves the podcast because it's digestible. Ooh, <laughs> awesome! And um, and she says it's perfect for fellows, attendings, parents, residents, students, or just or if you just think poop is cool, which, which is like everybody. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you couldn't poop, that would not be good. So thank you, JRUTS73. All right, well, on to the show. On to the show. So Dr. Black, I have really wanted to have you on this podcast for a long time. So thank you so much for joining us on Bow Sounds today. Well, Jen and Peter, I appreciate the invitation, and it is a real pleasure to be here. So we'll start with a a challenging one. Um, For our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Well, that's something I grappled with. (laughs) And I came came up with a sentence, but it has a few conjunctives in it. Uh, I would say that I'm a uh, busy but contented pediatric gastroenterologist and hepatologist and a mentor, which I thoroughly enjoy. And a mad scientist, (laughs) and I can go into that more later, and a music lover, especially local Memphis rock and roll, and an animal lover. So I'll put the period there and just Yeah, that's great. I would say that that's a sentence. That's a sentence. It counts. (laughs) A lot of parts, but you know, that no, that's you follow the rules there. Ninth grade English grammar (laughs) passes. So another thing just to get, get to, for us to get to know you a little bit better. So um, 
one thing we've been asking everybody, especially in the time of COVID, has been uh, to tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you read, listened to, or watched recently that you would recommend. Well, uh, this is uh, a little bit different than just a brand new book, but uh, I'll give you the story here. About 25 years ago, Robert Gordon, a local uh, author, wrote a book called It Came from Memphis, and it was a comprehensive history of Memphis music, all the way from the uh, roots in blues and country and western, all the way up through rockabilly to rock and roll and soul. And it was a, a fantastic book. It was, uh, it was hailed by Rolling Stone magazine as a must read and it's a fantastic book. This past year, he came out with an updated edition where he has added to it. And I managed to get a snag, an autographed copy of it from him. Nice. Um, he's a, a very accomplished guy. He's, he won a Grammy award for doing the liner notes for a compilation album from uh, a local uh, Memphis group called Big Star, who you might have heard of. They've, they're a little bit of a cult band. But um, it, it's a, and, and, it's, and it's not just a dry history kind of book. It's, it's a totally enjoyable read. And I would highly recommend it. And I know we're not on TV, but uh, this is the nice. okay. updated. It came from Memphis. And yeah, and this is the one that came out... Uh, Oh. 25 years ago. So, uh, nice. highly recommended. Oh. I even, I'm going to reread it probably. That's awesome. I do miss Memphis music. So for the listeners who don't know, I was in Memphis for seven years before I came to Columbus and loved it there. I well, think I've heard that band. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you, you can't miss, uh, I mean, any type of music, you can find it here. And, uh, the uh, the local musicians are uh, very friendly. They're uh, they're warm. They're a tight knit group. Uh, they support each other, and that's one of the reasons I've uh, really enjoyed being involved with them. It's mm-hmm. just they're like a big family, and uh, very diverse. Uh, a lot of it's centered in Midtown, and Jen can tell you about Midtown, uh, one of the most interesting communities around here. And uh, it's just really a joy uh, just being involved with the whole scene around here. So I want to expand on that a little bit because you now have a record label. Can you tell us a little more about <laughs> that? that? Incredible. Well, it, it was sort of a, a long time dream. Um, I'm probably a frustrated musician. Uh, <laughs> I, I tried to play the bass in a rock and roll band years ago and they kicked me out. So I figured, well, I, you know, I wasn't going to make it that direction. So I moved in some other directions, including uh, being a, a disc jockey. I, I did that wow. through high school and most of college. Uh, in a local radio station just north of here. I grew up around Memphis. And um, so about, uh, well, I'd say going back 20 years ago, when I moved back to Memphis, I became really good friends with Robert Wyatt, a pediatric nephrologist who was the chief of pediatric nephrology here at uh, UT and La Bonner. Uh, he retired a few years ago, and he had then a chance to really become totally immersed in the local music scene, and he kind of pulled me in it too. 
And we just became just rabid fans of uh, the bands and the music around here, got to know the musicians. And we decided to start a record company to, and, and this is a vinyl only wow. record company. How cool is that, that is awesome. But vinyl is making a tremendous comeback. Oh yeah. And now CD sales are going down and vinyl sales are going up. And, uh, and actually vinyl sounds better if you have a good turntable and, uh, uh, stereo system. So we, uh, got together with some of our friends that included a lawyer who knew something about the music business, uh, a friend of ours who worked at Memphis Record Pressing. There's a large record pressing plant here that uh, runs day and night and presses for all the large labels and everything, and we use them too. And we got one of the really creative folks around here, Mike McCarthy, who is a filmmaker, musician, does a little bit of everything as our artistic director. And we did our first record by a group called Fingers Like Saturn. And that came out, I guess now, late 2018. I guess mm-hmm. it's it's been a while. And, and, and got it rolling. And uh, we're now up to, I think currently, we've released 12 records. And we have three more coming out soon. And uh, we did get hit by the uh, pandemic a bit last year Uh, the record pressing plant closed down and got behind and some other things but now we're cranking back up again and uh it's just been a blast it's been a lot of fun and uh we uh, we've kind of managed to break even you know we're not going to we're not going to get rich off of it but (laughs) hey you know we thoroughly enjoy it and uh it's just really been a lot of fun yeah, that's incredible. So it's like a, a way of like supporting that community that you've loved for so many years. Yeah, I mean these are these these folks are all without exception just tremendous people. Mm-hmm. They got really hit since they depend a lot on live shows. Right, uh, the right. pandemic really hit them hard financially, and we were able to through uh, record sales and that kind of thing, uh, you know, keep them going and. Uh, help them out. And uh, now things are starting to open back up cautiously and hopefully uh, they'll be able to get back on their feet and get back to full steam ahead again. So we're, we're hopeful. So for uh, listeners who want to check that out, what's the best way for them? Is it the website blackandwhiterecords.com? Yeah. The website is um, www.com black and wyatt w-y-a-t-t records all one word dot com nice and we have a lot of stuff on the website we have a lot of photographs and uh, reviews amazingly our records have uh, garnered a lot of really positive reviews not just locally but all over the country europe uh we actually have some folks in in uh, Great Britain, who have a, a podcast on vinyl records, oh, wow. they um, reviewed our most recent release by Snow Globe, and the guy went on and on and on about how this was a religious uh, experience oh, and that's great. everything, and it and it led uh, somebody to say, "Well, if that's really true, what would you say about the Beatles?" <laughs> and uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe he got he kind of went overboard a little <laughs> bit, but hey, we uh, we were real happy about yeah, it. Yeah, that's awesome. 
I know. Mm. Dr. Wyatt is awesome, too. His that office really used cool. to be right next to mine when I was a chief resident. Oh, really? Yeah, and he would, like, invite us. He would bring a food truck and have the band play on his front porch. Wow. And I was yep. like, what kind porta, of porta potties and everything. Yeah. <laughs> porta potties everybody would come out, listen to live music, and it would be oh. right on his front porch. <laughs> that is awesome. Really and wish. a lot of the folks uh, on the label that we've recorded uh, mm-hmm. started out with the porch parties, yeah. porch oh, concerts. Man that he did but unfortunately we're not just a music podcast so we probably right. should talk yeah. a little about okay. medicine <laughs> also i i also wanted to point out i think black and wyatt those cool are name. two great last names for record label that is very true i was thinking like lou and lee is not the same <laughs> <laughs> that would not go well <laughs> anyways yes let's move on okay so unfortunately no no no. fortunately, fortunately. we do get have the privilege of talking about <laughs> medicine as well all right so uh, obviously, our main topic today is PSC. But before talking about that, so uh, Jen has been talking about you for a long time, including a lot of the <laughs> amazing things you've done, both now, recently, and in the past. So as a transplant hepatologist, you were part of a team that took care of the first living donor transplant in a pediatric patient in Chicago back in 1989. So what was that experience like and Obviously, the field has changed dramatically. How has it changed in the past uh, three decades or so? Well, gee, thinking back uh, to that time at uh, at University of Chicago, that's uh, when Peter Whittington, who uh, I'm sure all of the listeners will know, uh, a really famous pediatric hepatologist, was my division chief. And actually, before that, I was his fellow here at uh, Le Bonheur in Memphis. And when I finished my fellowship is when he moved from Memphis to Chicago uh, to head up the, uh, the, as medical director of the pediatric transplant program there. And I went with him. Uh, things really took off when we got there. There was a really top-notch uh, adult uh, team or transplant surgery team headed by Christoph Brolsch, who had arrived from Hamburg, and uh, a great team of surgeons, and they really did a lot of innovative things surgically, surgical techniques and approaches and, you know, that type of thing. Um, And they, uh, and actually uh, a living donor transplants had been performed in the preceding few months, I believe in Australia, uh, Brazil, and maybe Japan, but they were very sick patients, and uh, there was kind of an uh, act of desperation. I don't think the outcomes were all that great. And, but in this case, the uh, little girl, 21-month-old with biliary atresia, was in reasonably good health. She obviously had end-stage liver disease and needed a transplant, but wasn't an extremist. And so they, um, Peter and Christoph and the team, and it was really exciting kind of just to be a part of it because they were always cooking something up. And they decided this is something they wanted to go. And it would be, if successful, it would be a really great boon to pediatric transplant because, you know, the paucity of donors for small children uh, made it made cadaver transplants really uh, difficult because of the small pool. And this would expand that. So found the right family. Um, these were some folks from Texas and they were, very much on board for doing it. But one of the things I thought they did that was really smart and really uh, a great approach is they took several months before the transplant and brought in the ethics department. 
and had a series of meetings and discussions. And actually, this was all published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, looking at the equipoise of for and against, you know, the things that would favor and things would not that would not favor ethically, uh, including the donor safety and that kind of thing, uh, a living donor transplant. And again, this was all public. It was transparent. I think that was an excellent move and a lot of great discussion came up, to, um, you know, all of the uh, uh, rules for the donor, for uh, psychological evaluation and a waiting period. And it, it was all really well planned. Fortunately, it went well. And uh, the whole world was kind of watching this. It was kind of a little nerve wracking, but they did a great job. The patient did well. And, uh, and then it really did open the door, I think, for expanding the donor pool and helping a lot more kids, smaller children with uh, end-stage liver disease. And it was a lot of fun. You know, and I think a lot of the improvements or a lot of the advances uh, have, been, have been incremental, but over a long period of time, they've been important. Surgical innovations, organ preservation the uh, immunosuppressive regimens. I mean, we're still using a lot of same drugs, uh, tacrolimus and uh, so forth, but uh, I think we're using them in a smarter fashion to, uh, to be effective. And then, of course, uh, you know, it's not just a living donor, but, you know, they've continued with reduced size grafts to fit bigger livers and the smaller kids. And so just a lot of advances on a lot of fronts over time, I think, have really brought uh, a lot of benefits to the transplant field in pediatrics. And that, those are the main things I, I've noticed, I think, over the years. Yeah. So let's move on a little bit and talk about primary sclerosing cholangitis, or PSE, which is something many of us have never seen but when it is diagnosed, it can cause significant morbidity and mortality for our patients. So before we start getting into details, can you explain to us what is it and how do we diagnose it? <laughs> well, we primary, pri primary sclerosing cholangitis is a chronic fibroobliterative disease of the bile ducts, both the intrahepatic and extrahepatic bile ducts. It's an insidious disease. It progresses over periods of years. Uh, it causes uh, biliary obstruction, progressing to cirrhosis, end-stage liver disease. There is no really proven effective treatment so far except transplant. There is a high incidence later in the disease of cholangiocarcinoma, which is a deadly uh, form of cancer. It progresses usually beyond treatment feasibility before it's picked up, although that's improving. Fortunately, we don't see it uh, in children. Uh, it's less than 1% in children, just a handful of cases reported, but it is a real problem in adults. And, you know, 5 to 10% of adults will actually develop carcinoma over years if they have the uh, have the disease. And, and it's one of the most frustrating diseases. I got involved in it through a patient we had here at Labonner several years ago. And it was a patient I saw uh, as a junior attending with Peter Whittington's brother, Gene Whittington, who was a, a pediatric oh, wow. gastroenterologist here. He scared me. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, he, he, he and Peter were very much alike uh, in some ways and different in other ways. You know, they were very stimulating to be around. The parents the, uh, of this uh, young man donated money for research in PSC, uh, Musette and Alan Morgan. And I became interested in the disease. But, it, you know, it really gave me a lot of gray hairs and probably knocked a lot of them out, too. <laughs> because it's such a difficult disease to study clinically. We think it's uh, an immune-mediated disease, but it doesn't really behave like a classic uh, autoimmune disease, doesn't respond to immunosuppression. There aren't many patients. It is a rare disease. The incidence in adults is about 1 in 100,000. The prevalence is about 10 in 100,000. And for children, it's those numbers are one-fifth what you see in the adults, as best we can tell. You know, any uh, study really needs to be a multi-center study uh, involving, you know, multiple centers to get enough patients. And we don't really have a good surrogate marker for disease progression or response to any kind of therapy. The adults for years have been using alkaline phosphatase as a biliary marker, and they found that, yeah, you can get improvement in that, but it doesn't really improve the outcome of the disease in terms of uh, cirrhosis and uh, portal hypertension and, and transplant listing. And, uh, and then, of course, in children, you can't use alkaline phosphatase because of bone uh, making up most of the serum activity. So... Uh, we use uh, gamma-GT, gamma-glutamyl transpeptidase, and uh, it's not found in bone, but it is found in kidney and pancreas. Uh, it's inducible by, by drugs, by medications, and so it's not perfect either. And again, it, we're not sure it's a very good surrogate marker. I mean, it is a biliary marker, but we're not sure that it really uh, is a marker for progression of the disease to, to fibrosis and cirrhosis and end-stage liver disease. And then, and then in children, you know, the studies looking at outcomes could last years. And, you know, doing that in kids is, is almost impossible, probably is impossible. So it's been a, a difficult uh, disease to, to study. Progress has been made, but it's been slow, and there's still a lot of uh, a lot of territory that needs to be covered. Yeah, and so like Jen had mentioned, you know, PSC I think is rare to see in person, especially for non-hepatologists like us. But uh, definitely, we get tested on it a lot, and I think a lot of the things <laughs> I know about it is really from like studying for boards. Um, so you know, people talk about like the characteristic imaging findings, like a beaded appearance. Um, but one of the big things that stands out is its association with other conditions, specifically ulcerative colitis and also some association with, association with autoimmune hepatitis. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Well, uh, the uh, association with inflammatory bowel disease is fascinating mm -hmm. uh, for adults and pretty much for kids, too, with the disease. About two-thirds will have inflammatory bowel disease. and most frequently ulcerative colitis. Uh, a few will have uh, Crohn's, but it's predominantly, and those that do have Crohn's actually mainly the, the ones who have colonic involvement. Mm -hmm. So the colon seems to be important. And about 10% of the pediatric patients who have uh, PSC will have asymptomatic colitis. That mm -hmm. is, 
they won't have any symptoms, no bloody diarrhea or whatever. But if you were to scope them, do a colonoscopy and biopsy, you would find microscopic uh, colitis. So they, they do have it. Um, and uh, interestingly, I think uh, one of the preliminary questions you were asking about you know, is if you will, if you take out the colon or does the disease activity in the colon impact on PSC? And the answer seems to be no. Uh, there's not a good correlation with uh, IBD activity and progression of the, uh, of the PSC. Even with colectomy, you can still get PSC. Now, interestingly, where there are more data that's, that's more interesting is the area of recurrent PSC, and that is PSC recurring in a transplanted liver mm-hmm. after liver transplant. And what has evolved from adult data and now some pediatric data is that having active colonic disease going into transplant has a negative effect on outcomes in general, but also uh, on recurrence of the disease after transplant. Mm. And um, and I might want to make a plug here for Mark Deneau, who is a pediatric gastroenterologist in Utah, University of Utah, who started an international PSC, pediatric PSC study group. You know, it took a while for that to all accumulate data, get off the ground, and now they're mining that data, and they're finding a lot of really interesting things. Uh, now, of course, this is mainly retrospective data, but it's been analyzed in a smart way, and things are coming out. So just this past May, in hepatology, they published a paper looking at outcomes after transplant in pediatric patients. And um, interestingly, the patients who, pediatric patients who had recurrence of the disease after transplant more often had active IBD. They were younger. They had a shorter period of time after their diagnosis to when they came to transplant. And then after transplant, they had a rougher course. They had more rejection. They had more steroid-resistant rejection. And they had a overall uh, a greater mortality if they had uh, active IBD. Yeah, it does seem like the colon really does have a, an impact on the disease in that sense. It may just be more difficult to show it or prove it when you're looking at this effect on disease activity prior to transplant or anything going on like that. Mm-hmm. Some of the theories for pathogenesis of PSC involve interaction between the the colon and biliary epithelium. The simplest one is that inflammation of the colon leads to leaky gut, and you have bacterial products being able to, to breach the mucosal barrier, enter the portal circulation, and go to the liver, and then impact on hepatocytes and bile ducts. The aberrant homing theory that posits that T lymphocytes from the gut in in the face of IBD get honed into certain markers, cellular surface markers, like toe-like receptors and so forth, and not only start homing in on gut epithelium, but then start aberrantly homing in on biliary epithelium. There's some evidence to support that. And then, of course, the microbiome 
undoubtedly plays a large role. I mean, we know that IBD patients have uh, dysbiosis, a very markedly abnormal microbiome profile that most likely through its products, the, the metabolites, as well as the impact of the microbiome on the gut immune system uh, sets in motion a dis- immune dysregulation that's also part of the IBD uh, pathogenesis, but also brings in the liver and the bile ducts as well. So there clearly is a strong connection between the gut and the liver in PSC and the bile ducts. Now, the evidence is not so far that they're advocating anyone who gets a liver transplant with PSC should have a colectomy. Mm-hmm. Not, not quite that far yet, but it could be that certainly if there is active disease in the, in the colon that doesn't respond to therapy prior to transplant, that, that might be an option at some point. Mm-hmm. And then you were asking about autoimmune hepatitis. Yeah. Well, the, now, interestingly enough, in inflammatory bowel disease, there is association not only with PSC, but also autoimmune hepatitis. Mm-hmm. And there is now a phenomenon uh, originally called overlap syndrome, where you have both PSC, disease of the bile ducts, and autoimmune hepatitis with uh, interface inflammation and all the features of, of autoimmune hepatitis. And in adults, the incidence of that uh, overlap syndrome is about 5%. But in pediatrics, it's much higher. In some series, it ranges all the way from 25 to 50%. So it was called overlap. It has sort of, the name has changed. The European Society first changed, and then we've kind of come along too, of calling it uh, autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis, or ASC. And actually, Alex Mowat and the King's College folks years ago were describing a subset of patients with autoimmune hepatitis who behave differently and had evidence of biliary obstruction. And they started actually doing cholangiograms on all of their AIH patients and identified this subset uh, that had both. And they termed the, actually termed the coin autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis. And the only, the only thing that's a little um, different is, is they described a really favorable uh, uh, response of these patients to immunosuppression. Hmm. And since then, with this overlap or ASC, that has not borne out in most centers. It actually, may, maybe the AIH component responds, but the PSC component seems to not and even be progressive and not have uh, always a very good prognosis. But that's kind of uh, how the two diseases find a nexus and and intersect with each other. And we don't have good criteria for making the diagnosis, particularly in children, where we see it most frequently. We certainly don't really know at present uh, the best way to treat it. And the evidence is getting a little uh, muddy, too. Some of the evidence from that International PSC Consortium, some of the data from that suggests that the prognosis and the uh, ASC might be actually better than uh, a standard PSC. So we still need to study it. The biggest problem in pediatric disease is being able to do a controlled, prospective, blinded trial. And that is so difficult to do. 
that's what it's going to take to get us where we need to be. And and again, it's slowly getting there. You're getting multi-center consortia together. And the NIH has taken a little more interest in funding through their liver initiative. So I think we'll see it happen. It's just taken too long for us old geezers don't have patience for it, but uh, it, it seems to be moving in that direction. Sure. I did want to ask a practical question, and maybe it's yeah. just because I can't remember the answer at, right at this moment. But if I have a patient who has ulcerative colitis, what is your typical screening protocol for PSC? Well, there are no official screening recommendations. I do uh, liver, a liver profile and a gamma GT uh, every six months. And then if anything makes me think uh, any other time, if they develop uh, jaundice or if they develop puritis or anything else, hepatosplenomegaly or, any, or anything like that, obviously jump in right away. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, you do need to try to make sure that there's nothing else going on concomitantly. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes NAFL uh, or NASH can cause a little elevation of the gamma GT as well. If you got a teenager who drinks alcohol, uh, that can induce uh, gamma GT to some degree. Uh, but usually it's not just gamma GT, it's also ALT. And then you, if it's a teenager, again, uh, you might want to think about Wilson's disease and just the basic things we always think about with mm-hmm. elevated liver tests. But if those come back negative um, and you do have, uh, you know, th- then you may want to uh, then do the autoantibodies and so forth to look for AIH. Then, uh, if you think the patient's got AIH, uh, of course, usually you'd want to do a liver biopsy to confirm that. Uh, now, the adults, and on occasion, I mean, their approach over the years has been a little different for diagnosing it in their IBD. If their patient has IBD, particularly ulcerative colitis, and develops elevated uh, alkaline phosphatase, they will do imaging, and if they see, you know, imaging consistent with PSC, they'll make the diagnosis without a biopsy. Mm-hmm. But then they don't see nearly as much ASC or overlap. Right. So in children, we advocate imaging, the lab work and so forth, um, but also a liver biopsy because of the high incidence of the uh, uh, ASC. And you really need to diagnose that with a biopsy. Mm-hmm. Although the exact histologic criteria are not really there. And sometimes, you know, you can see such densely packed uh, lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate that it kind of pushes on the bile ducts and, oh, well, is that bile duct inflammation? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it can get a little confusing at times. But um, uh, but you should just, you know, ha- and, and I think there was a paper in JPGN a while back, and I, obviously I can't quote it, but uh, they looked at um, the uh, the the incidence of uh, the diagnosis of PSC in pediatric patients who had been diagnosed with IBD. Mm-hmm. And I believe they found that if you had a patient who developed elevated uh, ALT and or I think gamma GT within 90 days of their diagnosis, they had a very high probability of having uh, mm-hmm. of having PSC at that point and should be investigated. So mm-hmm. I think just a, a low threshold uh, for suspecting it. Now, we know about two-thirds of patients with PSC get IBD. 
probably about 5%, maybe pushing it to 10, probably closer to 5 patients, 5% of patients with IBD would get, will get PSC. Mm. It may be smaller than that maybe three to five, something like that. Depends on the, the series you look at. Yeah, well, you know, we've talked a lot about transplant as a role in treatment, but that's not the only treatment for PSC. So what is the role of you know, other medications like ursodeoxycholic acid? Well, that's a good question. I think there, there are two that have the forefront right now. One is ursodeoxycholic acid and the other is vancomycin, oral vancomycin. Uh, ursodeoxycholic acid has, has been vexing in terms of uh, the history of its use in PSC. And the thing is, uh, and of course, uh, for those of you, I most of you know what uh, UDCA is. It's essentially bear bile. It's the predominant bile acid in bears. It's very hydrophilic. It, uh, one of the reasons bears don't form gallstones when they hibernate and have bile stasis is they have uh, UDCA. And of course, it's, it's FDA approved for dissolution of cholesterol gallstones. It's also FDA approved in adults for treating PBC, primary biliary uh, cholangitis, PBC, where it does seem to have a beneficial effect, but it's not really FDA approved for any other use. But because it has the properties of stimulating bile flow, it's anti-apoptotic, it's immunomodulatory, uh, it's been used like a tonic to treat everything. It's been thrown at uh, NAFL, NASH, all the cholestatic diseases. Uh, it's been used, I hate to say it, but almost like water by hepatologists. And so why not use it in PSC? And certainly in pediatrics, we've, at one time, all these patients were routinely started on uh, UDCA. And initially, the anecdotal data looked really good because uh, the uh, ALT and in the adults, the alkaline phosphatase, and in the kids, the gamma GT, came down pretty dramatically, uh, fairly quickly. And of course, that really made people think, well, gee, this is wonderful. The adults even thought, well, gee, if a little bit's good, more would be better. So they started using high-dose UDCA, 28 to 30 milligrams per kilogram per dose. And they uh, actually got the NIH a few years ago to fund a prospective blinded uh, control trial in adults. And initially, things looked good. The, the numbers were improving. But then they, they started looking at hard endpoints, development of cirrhosis and portal hypertension, a transplant bleeding varices, development of cholangiocarcinoma. And they found that the patients who were getting the high-dose UDCA versus placebo were doing worse with those hard endpoints. So the, uh, the safety monitoring board said, whoa, you need to stop this study. So they stopped it. And then the high-dose idea actually even trickled down to using UDCA at all. And the AASLD uh, came out with the new guidelines a few years ago and said, there's really no role we can see for uh, UDCA and PSC, but they wouldn't comment on pediatrics because there weren't sure. enough data, even though all these kids are on it. So that, you know, kind of really threw a bucket of water on things, but studies have continued. And I think what's emerged so far is 
that number one, you can't use alkaline phosphatase as a useful surrogate marker for the disease. And actually, though, it has emerged that there is, there is a subgroup of patients that if they normalize or near normalize their alkaline phosphatase, now we're speaking of adults, uh, within, say, the first year or so after diagnosis, that they do seem to have a better prognosis, and that is on, on UDCA. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is if you look at the patients not on UDCA, a significant number of those folks will normalize or have their alkaline phosphatase come down. So maybe the UDCA folks, they would have come down anyway. And actually, uh, through, again, some more work with the uh, Mark Deneau and the international group, uh, the same observation has been made in pediatrics as well. We see this remarkable response in some patients, but the gamma GT will also come down and up to half of patients if they're not treated with UDCA. So the answer is we, we don't know. There may be a place for it in a subgroup, but it's going to be hard to to show that. So UDCA has been a little disappointing. And then most recently, Mark Deneau and his group actually took their cohort, this international cohort, and looked at outcomes with, with patients who got only observation, no vancomycin and no UDCA, those that got UDCA, and those that got vancomycin and looked at outcomes. Now, it was over a relatively short period, but they they looked at outcomes and found no difference among the three groups. You know, that's really, you can really start fights with folks with vancomycin. (laughs) There, I don't know how many point counterpoints and, you know, debates I've seen uh, at meetings uh, over using vancomycin for PSC or not using vancomycin. I think we all anecdotally have patients that we've given vancomycin to and their disease, or at least their markers did improve and their IBD improved as well. Mm. But again, showing that in a controlled fashion with a prospective study, there are some adult studies that seem to show a benefit, but really not any pediatric studies. And until we can have that data, this argument and this controversy, I think, is going to continue to go on. And we don't really know, you know, if you take vancomycin forever, what does it do to your microbiome? I mean, initially, there might be a beneficial effect, but uh, does that, you know, does it not over time maybe uh, do something harmful? It's uh, just a lot of questions and a lot of things that need to be answered. And we're going to have to have those RCTs to answer the question. And then just to reiterate, so, I mean, especially given the association with IBD and autoimmune hepatitis. So you were saying before, autoimmune medications uh, like steroids and things typically are not effective for PSC, right? Not effective for PSC. Now, for for the ASC or the overlap, there may be a beneficial effect on the autoimmune hepatitis component. Right. That is the, you know, the lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate and the interface hepatitis and that kind of thing, but not the bile duct pathology that's part of the PSC component. Um, So uh, those patients just generally don't do as well. Uh, You might get some benefit, again, if you're just treating the uh, autoimmune hepatitis component, but uh, the uh, they still don't have nearly as good outcome as patients who have pure uh, AIH, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, AIH by itself 
responds wonderfully right. to immunosuppression with mm-hmm. uh, steroids and maybe azathioprine. But, um, and of course, those drugs have no effect at all on uh, PSC. Yeah. So mm, that's hard. Yeah. So moving on a little bit, one of the things you mentioned in the very beginning is that you have a passion for mentoring. And uh, we did want to congratulate you on your recent 2020 AGA Institute Council Section on Obesity, Metabolism, and Nutrition Research Mentor Award. So, okay, looking back on your career thus far, what do you think is the most valuable advice you received? Um, And also, what advice would you have for our listeners? Well, gee, I have to look back over a long period of time and more than one individual. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, early on, uh, you know, people I really, uh, who really meant a lot to my career, people like Peter Whittington, but there were others, uh, Patrick So, who um, helped me with my basic research interest in lipid absorption. Uh, I've continued to collaborate with him over the years. He just retired. Um and, uh, but they all, you know, all gave me really good advice. Uh, and I think if I had to summarize all of it, uh, I think to do, well, number one for research, let's take the research first. Research, you really have to have a passion for it and you have to have a, a fire in the belly to be successful at it um, because it's hard. Uh, you've got to have a tough skin. You're going to send in a manuscript or a grant, and reviewers may not be kind. You may even be kind of nasty. And when you're when you're young, you know, you get your feelings hurt, and you're ready to give up and go home. Well, no, just take what you can get from it in a positive way and redo it, rewrite it, revise it, keep going. And um, uh, and again, if if you really have the passion for it, it's not that you feel like you have to do it. It's like you feel like you can not. Do, you can't not do it. Mm-hmm. You, you, you've, you're drawn to it. You know. You, you really do. And I think that's the most successful people. I think have have that. And then mentorship is so important because, you know, when you first start out, and this also holds for clinical uh, work, for being a clinician, starting your fellowship, uh, doing research is you need someone who's been down the path before and kind of knows where all the nooks and crannies and the traps are and the beasts and the dangers and but also where all the positive and pleasant things are you know where the beach is and you know can can help you navigate through all that and um and and again i the the really great mentors not not only do do this in a professional sense, but they take a real interest in you as a person, generally. They, mm-hmm. they, they become a friend. And uh, they can be just so important as you're getting started when you will make missteps, where you won't know the whole terrain very well. They can be just invaluable in helping you out. And since I feel like I had such great mentorship uh, all along the way when I was coming up, I, I sort of sort of felt a an obligation to give back with that. And then as I did that, I found out that I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what I've been doing lately as uh, director of the uh, research institute here is really taking on junior investigators and helping them, for example, write their first uh, grant, uh, K award, an NIH uh, mentored research award. We, uh, we have a whole program to do that. We have a monthly K club 
where we I'm talk about how, yeah <laughs> yeah you were there um and uh, and then we meet with them one on one to uh, you know they all mean well when they're young but keeping them on task and getting them to get everything in on time is always kind of have to threaten them a little bit on that i guess i was a fellow graduate let me just make sure i clarify because you don't like if you're really going through you have to write the k which i didn't do i was a fellow graduate (laughs) and um but you know uh they they appreciate it the ones who do well appreciate the uh the help and the input and it's a lot of fun and, uh, and, and also the other thing I do too is for the last several years, I've been chair of the Department of Pediatrics Promotion and Tenure Committee. Mm-hmm. And it's been a lot of fun uh, helping faculty navigate through the whole complicated uh, promotion and tenure uh, pathway. Uh, I tell them when they come meet with me, I said, okay, this is going to be like having a baby. It'll take, it'll take nine months and it'll be painful along the way, (laughs) but it'll hopefully be rewarding when you, (laughs) when you get it. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, I've just had, and and I would sort of give the same advice. Uh, I think I would pass down the advice I've received over the years is that, uh, you know, if you, if you do what you really enjoy and you have a real love for it, you'll do well. And don't be discouraged. You do have to have a thick skin and you have to have persistence and you have to have determination, but usually that'll pay off if you, if you keep at it. And one other person who uh, I think uh, was a really sage um, person, and that was Mary Armour, who was oh. the uh, CEO of Le Bonner Children's Hospital for about a 10-year period. She, she retired uh, a couple of years ago. But she always said, uh, and, this, and, th- and, and not only did she say this, she actually applied this to how she ran Le Bonner. She said, if you put the patient first in every aspect of what you do, it will pay off and everything else will kind of fall into place. And I don't know, I was a little skeptical about it. Well, I think that'll work for a lot of things, but maybe not everything. But but really and truly, I, I was just amazed. She really ran the ship like that. And for the most part, I think the majority of, of the time, that's the way it worked. If you, if you did the right thing, you, you put the patient first and did what was best for the patient. And I think that carries over to your clinical practice, uh, to, to, to research. If you're doing research with the ultimate goal of helping your patient, everything will work out. And maybe I'm just a hopeless optimist. I don't know, but that's, uh, I, I think, uh, I'm gonna, I think I'm generally, it's been proven, uh, right in my, in my case anyway, for most of that. Yeah. No, that's great. It is great advice. And, you know, as we're coming to a close on the podcast, Dr. Black, I just have to thank you for all the years of mentorship that you've given me. His door was always open. We would sit in a little tiny table <laughs> in front of a poster of some music festival that you had gone to all no, those years that ago. that was an original sign print of the uh, of a concert poster for the Grateful Dead's last oh, tour. Oh, wow. It was pretty it was cool. Some uh, poster. Yeah, just some yeah, poster. Yeah. And it and it and it had, if you looked at it, it was kind of abstract, but it was like a, a terrapin. Because oh, you know, wow. that became one of their icons toward, you know, toward the end there. It's a it's a, it's a it's a great poster. I've had that poster for years and years, and I couldn't think of a better place to put it. Yep. Sit right so, uh, under it. I'd be like, yeah, Dr. So, Black, so you have usually a 
usually the poster is over the person I'm talking to in the chair. Oh, so, so, uh, so, yeah, so really I'll, I'll, sometimes I get tired of looking at the person, I'll look yeah. at the poster. <laughs> well, but in I'm all kidding. honesty, you know, all those mentors, and I really feel like you helped me get out of the box and come to this podcast and do all of these other fun things. So I really appreciate it. Um, well, well, Jen, I'm extremely proud of you, and uh, just keep up the great work. Well, I appreciate that. And as we're closing, do you have any final words for our listeners? Well, and I think taking what we've been talking about or what I was talking about and taking it just to life in general mm-hmm. is whatever you do, uh, enjoy it because you'll do much better at things you enjoy than things you don't enjoy. Now, we all can't always do everything we enjoy, but try to make that a big part of what you do. And always self-analyze and self-assess periodically. And, you know, it's easy to fool yourself. You know, maybe you're not happy, but you're telling yourself, yeah, I'm happy. This is what I want to do. But maybe you're really not. And maybe you need to make some adjustments and never be afraid to to do that, to to self-reflect. I think more people should do that. And then, you know, work hard, play hard, enjoy yourself. We're not going to be here forever. And uh, you need to really make the most of and enjoy the the, the time you have. And listen to good vinyl records. Yeah, and listen to great right. vinyl records, blackandwhiterecords.com. <laughs> oh yeah, we'll put it on the in the show notes. Yep, that sounds good. So, yeah, once again, Dr. Black, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and it's great to meet someone that Jen has talked about so much and looks up to so much. So yeah. thank you. Well, it's been my pleasure, and thank you for inviting me. What a great episode. Yeah. Awesome guest. Yeah. Great guy. Can't wait to see him again in person soon. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell a friend about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast and get a shout out at the beginning of our show. Especially if they're funny. (laughs) And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPEGAN Foundation. You can also get there at www.naspgham.org. The money... The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. You'd think we would have figured this out by now. Nope. As always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.